For this, your good news, for your creatures and all your creation, we are grateful, O God. May we marvel at this good news, reshape our neighborhoods with it, and carry it to our city this day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Welcome to the last Thursday of the term. Our gospel reading today provides lessons of good and bad fruit, and it has driven me to a sermon about integrity and a few reflections about agrarian readings of good and bad fruit. Do you recall a time when you knew you were immersed in integrity, when the people and the place and the earth that surrounded you held each other in a moment of spiritual and material harmony. I'm sure that you and I could tell lots of excellent stories about integrity from our families, our communities, our churches, and even from our organizations. And we want those narratives of integrity, I think, to grow and to multiply. And that's one of the reasons we're here at Wycliffe. So I must confess to you this morning that I'm a little bit bugged about what I see about the decline of integrity around me. Instead of integrity, it seems to me that our lives are very often immersed in contradictions and tensions. Well, some failures of integrity are mundane. Let me show you an example from the bathroom this morning. It's called French Kiss. Very evocative, sounds passionate, sounds intimate. But if you read the label, it's actually a can full of chemicals you should never spray in your own proximity. In fact, it tells you, don't touch this stuff. Don't let it get on your skin. And whatever you do, don't breathe it. Call for medical help. There's a little bit of integrity issue here between the label or the brand and the contents. I think that's what Matthew is on about this morning. By the way, in my youth, I did find out as well that this is an excellent flamethrower. <laughs> Don't do this at home. But of course, issues of integrity beyond the mundane are far more serious. Think about our planet. Think about the people around us. Think about our church. Think about our neighborhoods. These tensions are less than humorous. They point to serious lacks of integrity. I'm concerned as a community person about the disappearance of social capital from our neighborhoods that erodes the very basis upon which we build trust and have integrity of place. We all talk about the lack of integrity in our public discourse at many levels. We talk about the integrity missing from the marketplace and about corporate greenwashing that mocks biblical stewardship. The lack of integrity in our rapacious extractive processes on the land and in the oceans that now has delivered this new era that we're starting to call the Anthropocene. So there are lots of issues of integrity around us. I think Matthew and both Paul and Matthew were facing issues of integrity that caused them to write and talk and preach about fruit. Jesus always, I think, showed a keen interest in integrity. In the two verses just after the passage that Julia read, he becomes quite angry at those that tried to use a Jesus branding approach without the Jesus content. Lord, Lord, we used your brand all the time, they cried. 
both in Matthew and Luke. And Jesus' retort is a sharp and ancient Semitic dismissal. Matthew's and Paul's various employments of the fruit metaphor are in some ways quite simple and in other ways very profound. If you have taken a walk in a forest or in an orchard in the spring, you know that it's sometimes difficult to identify the trees with no fruit and with the beginnings of leaves. Even if those trees are indigenous to Ontario, you might have a hard time recognizing them. But if you take the same walk a few months later, when the trees are loaded with fruit, then our recognition is much quicker. Oh, we see peaches over there, northern spy apples, and walnuts hanging there. So what is it, how is it possible for us to suddenly identify these trees? even without the intimate knowledge of a fruit farmer, because we see the fruit. Matthew and Paul tell us, you will know their identity and you will know their integrity by their fruit. So we're at the end of a long road of 11 sermons on fruit from Galatians 5. So what's the deal here? Why are we in Matthew all of a sudden? Well, we ran out of Pauline fruit. So I got thrown the Matthean bone. But I'm very happy because I love Matthew and I like to provoke the Paulinists with little Matthew and Paul comparisons. I'm sure you have discussed Matthew and Paul before in the classroom, in the pub, and their rather distinct approaches on a number of topics, including how they employ this metaphor. So here's one distinction that's probably worth talking about at great length at some time. It seems to me that for Paul, it is only within the spirit of God that ethical participation in community life is made possible. Humans simply don't have the capacity apart from life in Christ. We are by nature sarkinos. We are not thumatikos, flesh and spirit, which essentially makes us helpless slaves to sin, Paul says, within the moral realm. <coughs> But unlike Paul, Matthew displays no explicit link between ethics and the spirit. Rather, the roots of both good and evil are in our hearts. The state of one's inner being is therefore of crucial importance to Matthew in determining our outlook and our behavior. And the metaphor that Matthew most commonly uses to illustrate this point is the tree and its fruit. Though Matthew and Paul have different starting points, however, I think they stand together on the basic issue of integrity. No one produces good fruit by exerting great and strenuous and holy effort at the ends of their branches. Good fruit, rather, is the sign. It is the effect of a cultivated and transformed ecology in which every tree and every person is interwoven with the health and the fertility of the soil, its nutrients, its organisms, good water, air, sunlight, and the skills and the knowledge of the farmer. I think what's happening for me in Matthew is that he sends us back to the farm to understand the ecology necessary for the integrity of fruit. So in this passage, Jesus mimics John the Baptist's words from Matthew 3.10, and he pulls up echoes from Jeremiah and from the other prophets. 
There are parallel versions of this passage in Luke and in John. And there's juicy language. In verses 17 to 19, Matthew talks about bad or rotten trees that bear bad fruit. It's the same Septuagint word, sapron, as used in Job to describe things that have died and are being eaten by worms. And in Ecclesiastes and Joel to describe something that stinks because it's gone bad. We don't know in this passage who the false prophets are. There's lots of speculation. But we do know that they wear sheep's clothing. So in Matthew's language, they appear to be Christian because sheep are a symbol of believers. But Matthew does not want you and me or the original hearers of this text to feel helpless in the face of false prophets and false teaching. So twice in this paragraph, he asserts, that we will be able to recognize false prophets by their fruit. But as good farmers, of course, we know that waiting for fruit to grow is a slow process. It's not a quick judgment. From the day that a, a fruit sapling is planted, it can take years of cultivation and bringing in of manure and hauling of water and tending until the tree is actually ready to show the quality of its fruit. There's a biblical edict that you will not eat of a tree, a new tree for several years until it has done that, gone through that process. So in Matthew, this concept of doing, in contrast to saying, is at its heart. Doing God's will is linked with putting behavior, morality, and spirituality into practice in order to bear fruit. And these notions of praxis doing good and bearing fruit are involved in Matthew's idea of being just and of doing justice. So I, I cannot close today without some recognition of what's become a rather interesting recognition of the power of Jesus' utterances around trees and fruit today. As a growing body of Christians, both in our urbanized and globalized North, and other parts of the world are rediscovering what many Global South Christians and Jews have never forgotten. Number one, that these texts are the texts of agrarian peoples. We need to understand agrarian cultures to read them. That's why the stories and the rhythms and the language and the puns and the poetry are agrarian. After all, the Hebrew scriptures were written by people who lived in tiny villages and in small fortified towns. And virtually everyone, including those in the towns, was involved every day in food production, processing, and storage. That was their day job. Then we have Matthew's direct interdependency with the Old Testament and with the Hebrew text, which means, of course, that the language and the narratives and Jesus' sayings and parables and actions, even through the epistles and the apocalypse, make limited sense unless we understand agrarian life. Importantly, the entire agrarian canon reflects, as Ellen Davis puts it, multiple societies in social and economic transition. And in many places, the text reflects severe economic and political straits. So, 
we cannot understand good and bad fruit, even in its metaphoric explanation, apart from remembering who we are in our ancient and agrarian cultures. So what might these texts finally provoke us to ask if we think about them as agrarian texts and as we think about fruit in its agrarian context? I think agrarian readings do provoke in us a new humility about the mystery of God's creation and about our place within it. Agrarian readings can also highlight the ways that the violence in this text in Matthew, the hacking and the cutting and the burning actually make imminent sense in a world of agrarian cultivation where burning bad trees can do all kinds of things. It can be a creative and a redemptive act to create new ash for fertilizer, to generate heat for cooking, to spa generate space for replanting, to provide fresh pasture for animals. I think importantly, agrarian readings can reawaken ancient communitarian readings of these texts, which lie at the heart of good formation practices and the renovation of the spiritual life of our neighborhoods. Agrarian readings of good fruit can remind us that the life of Christ does not work for the individualist. We are meant to live lives of profound, entangled interdependence. And agrarian readings hold out the possibility that for the slower ecological readings that reground us in Christ, the cosmic creator, and the savior of the world. I also wonder if agrarian readings might provoke a few theological students to spend a year on the farm as their placement. So if we're concerned overly today about our brand, our personal brand, agrarian readings might send us back to the manure pile and to the orchard to dig into the true source of good fruit. A happy, fruitful agrarian advent to you all. Amen. Oh,